Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 14 in the book. Dr. Smith, chapter 14 is the beginning of part three of the book, which is a catalog of entrenched dysfunctional patterns. And you begin by talking about EDPs and modular therapy. And while we covered this in previous chapters, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a quick review of what EDPs and modular therapy is. Good idea. Okay, so so what's an EDP? EDPs means entrenched dysfunctional patterns. And actually, um, in the last couple of years since the book was written, now my colleagues and I are talking about entrenched maladaptive patterns, but I won't worry about that. And what it goes back to is that psychotherapy doesn't take away anxiety. It takes away the way we react to the anxiety that automatically happens on a physiological basis. And in in a similar way, the things that psychotherapy can help with are the ways that our instinctive, often non-conscious mind responds to situations. And furthermore, those responses are almost always responses to things that in some way our mind identifies as threats, as dangers. And so these are, these are ways of responding to dangers that are in some way maladaptive. In some way, they don't work very well or something else would work, work better. And sometimes those responses are very automatic and primitive and totally unhelpful. And sometimes they're, okay, they might work, but there's a better way. So those are the things that psychotherapy seeks to work with. One more thing that is very, very helpful for therapists is to realize that entrenched dysfunctional patterns, EDPs, are responses to uncomfortable, painful, or overwhelming feelings. In other words, whenever there's an EDP, where there's smoke, there's fire, an EDP is the smoke, and the fire is the anticipation of some kind of a painful, uncomfortable, or overwhelming feeling. And so just knowing that, that these responses that get us in trouble all have to do with feelings is very, very helpful for us in, in formulating and in, in making sense of what's going on in front of us. Okay. So our task as therapists is to address the EDPs. Could you tell us a little bit about modular therapy? Right. And, and that's another way to help us organize the way we think about the work that we're doing. And that is that human beings usually have some some pretty significant challenges early in their life and they develop coping mechanisms, EDPs, 
for, for dealing with those things, for keeping away from whatever bad feeling it might be. What happens is when that coping mechanism seems about to fail, when, when we detect that it might not work out, then what the mind does is it comes up with another layer of protection. And we gave the example in the first chapter in the book, in the very first of these podcasts of, of Jack, who had a hard time when he, when he needed something from his family, there wasn't anything there. And soon he developed a second layer of protection, which was to develop a value system that said being, being needy is bad, is shameful. Well, when that's threatened to fail, then his mind came up with a third layer of protection, and that was to have a panic attack. And so in this way, we can divide up protective entrenched dysfunctional patterns, sort of like the defenses in a castle. You know, you have an outer perimeter uh, that might be a hill, and then there's a moat, and then there's a wall, and then there's an inner castle, the, the keep where, the, where the, the Lord resides, and that's the last place to go. Well, in therapy, the most superficial of the protective layers or modules are the ones we work with generally first, and then little by little we work our way down to the, the more fundamental and deeper ones. And so that's going to help, that's going to make the task easier, especially because very often at the beginning we can't even tell what the deepest layers might be. They're kind of hidden in fog, and so, so we just work with what we have available and what we're aware of on the surface and what's most accessible. So with that little bit of introduction in this new section and in this chapter, we're going to start talking about some of the uh, entrenched dysfunctional patterns that you're actually going to run into in practice. And when we're done with these final chapters with this section in the book, we will have covered at least in my 40 years of experience, pretty much everything that you're going to see in your practice, at least superficially. Great, it's a great promise. Okay, um, so, so then let's begin. If EDPs are designed to help us avoid pain, we ought to look at behavioral avoidance patterns. You state in the chapter that there are eight of them and describe them as the building blocks of active affect avoidance patterns. Right. In other words, these are things that people do. They're not generally often not aware that they're doing it because their uh, non-conscious problem solver has detected a danger and is helping them to get around that danger. But nonetheless, they are things that we do. And, and so the first kind of category of these that's, that we talk about is what I call simple avoidance. It just means avoiding something because you know there's something you want to avoid. And so typically somebody who's experienced PTSD is going to be very aware that certain situations might trigger them re-experiencing a, a painful emotion, a painful event. And, and so they're going to avoid that. And that's simple avoidance. In, in your discussion of simple avoidance, you talk about uh, ACT therapy, uh, ACT. And uh, in fact, ACT comes up frequently during the, the chapter. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about it, because you do mention that 
avoidance, active conscious of avoidance of an affect, in fact, tends to increase that which we're trying to avoid. That is, is a very, very important principle because clients will come and, and they, they want, especially with me with prescriptions and things, they want something that's going to help them stay many miles away from any of those uncomfortable feelings that they've had. And in the meantime, what happens when the more they try to eliminate uncomfortable feelings, especially with medications, the worse those feelings get because the medication, when you're trying to eliminate it, your brain is trying to is trying to counteract that by increasing the level of of emotion because your brain is trying to use that emotion to get you to run away from something. And so you have to try harder and harder to eliminate it and it puts your focus on the painful emotion. So naturally when you're paying more attention to it it gets it gets it gets worse. So very often for example with anxiety um uh which is not which we'll cover in a later chapter, but um, um, people eventually realize that all these methods for running away from those feelings just aren't going to work. And the best thing to do is to just learn to live with it. And, and that's the most successful uh, outcome. And it's something that we as therapists can help people to do because we can give them the experience of, of going through a feeling, of experiencing an uncomfortable feeling and feeling better afterwards. So if we can if we can help our client have that experience, then we're way ahead on being able to share with them the idea that processing feelings is possible and is a much better idea than avoiding them. And so then that is where ACT comes in? Right. So ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, does, does a couple of things. Uh, one is it helps people identify what is a healthy way to cope and to live. And so it's, it's especially positive amongst the various therapies that are out there. Um, and, and, then, and then the thrust of it is to help people deal with a feeling, process a feeling, come to a state of acceptance about their uncomfortable emotions. A lot of the more what are called third wave therapies like emotion-focused therapy. EMDR, AEDP. Yep. And DBT. A lot of these more modern therapies acknowledge, unlike some of the older ones, the central role of emotion in people's problems and in their healing. And so that's, that's why I mentioned that one in particular, but the others are also very much focused on emotion. Okay. So you mentioned uh, the reluctance that a patient may feel in talking about those difficult uh, emotions. And say also that it is critical to help the patient hold the feeling, that difficult feeling, for more than a few seconds. Uh, this is a question of timing and allowing them to embrace the emotion, isn't it? That's right. And we know now there's a physiology to that, that the processing or the reprogramming to no longer be so afraid of a feeling involves a process called memory reconsolidation. And that takes a little while, it takes a few seconds. So when a, when a person touches on a feeling, very often un, until they've had some education about it, they'll touch on a feeling and then immediately talk themselves out of it. You know, like, 
oh, I'm feeling very angry at my mother, but you know, she really did the best thing she could. And, and she was, she was a pretty decent person and whoop, the feeling's gone. Mm-hmm. And, and so instead of getting processed and worked with, it's already disappeared. And we need to be ready to point that out and say, you know, that, that was an important feeling. Let's stay with that for a little while. And we can be philosophical about it later. Do we recognize that example as an example of simple avoidance? It's, it is a kind of simple avoidance, except, you know, the person would probably identify, yeah, I did want to get away from that feeling, but it's such an automatic form of it that it's not really so much thought out. Mm-hmm. You, you state also that simple avoidance can also happen without the patient's noticing. Pointing that out to the patient is the three-step dance, which we can find in chapter 10. And we mentioned it, I think, in podcast 12. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of review and and just clarity, can you just briefly describe to us what the three-step dance is? Right. It's a a very simple way to, uh, to make sense of the unfolding process of any kind of talk therapy. And if you listen carefully to what's coming, what is being communicated to you, there's a, there's a flow of communication. There's new material, things that, you're, that are being revealed. And as long as that's going on, the best thing we can do is to keep pretty quiet about it, right? That's not a place for intervening. But when we sense that there's an avoidance, that something started to come up and whoop, the, the client has, has slipped away from it, or is in some way skipping over something, our curiosity is going to ring a little bell up here that will say, uh-oh, what, what, what just happened there? And that's when we get to step two of the three-step dance. Step two is, now we change the subject, only we're not really changing the subject. Now we say something about, gee, you flitted away from that feeling really quickly, and maybe that was an uncomfortable feeling for you. What do you think? And the reason it's not really a change of subject is because the client has already changed the subject. The giant client's subject is, this is uncomfortable and I'm getting the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking about exactly where the client is. And so it doesn't feel like a disruption or a change. It feels like we're just following the, the flow of the conversation. And as we do that, hopefully we're going to overcome whatever uncomfortableness there was and be able to go back and stick with that feeling and do some processing. And it's only when that doesn't work that we go to step three, which is the strategic retreat. It's when you say, you know what, I think this may be just, you're not ready for this and we're going to have to come back to it later. And as I said back in the previous podcast, it's extra important that we not forget that because the client won't forget. They'll know that that's on the blackboard there and that we said we'd get back to it. And if we don't, then they're going to think that we're avoiding. So that's the three-step dance. But the key to it is really noticing when the flow of information is coming smoothly and your, your picture of the client's life is growing. And then you'll notice when it stops growing, when something gets in the way, something is blocking the free flow of of new information. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about the nonverbal schemas and the role that they play in uh, EDPs? Right. So, so this is a really very different category. It's a very different type of 
behavior that results from avoiding uncomfortable feelings because the uncomfortable feelings that are being avoided here are generally ones that happen very early in the person's life. So this, this is an avoidance, yes, but it's an avoidance that's become a pattern, but it was a pattern that was probably established way, 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 way back. So starting at the very first beginning of life, human beings are very reactive and the brain is beginning to learn patterns already, patterns to get away from uncomfortable feelings. And uh, so we'll see observational studies of nonverbal newborns in the first few months show that they do things to regulate their affect, uh, to connect with their mom, to orient towards their environment. And, and those are kind of start out as reflexes, but very quickly they become patterns that are ingrained. And, and so those, those are, are so deep and so, uh, so buried that we're probably not going to do very much to change them. But soon after that, uh, the, the patterns begin to be um, more complex and they're, and they're, they're things that we can begin to identify in adult behavior. You mentioned in the book the example of a patient with no conscious awareness who tends to overemphasize and focus on physical symptoms. That would be a good example of uh, where somebody was heavily rewarded when they, were, when they were sick and they got lots of attention and then they didn't get enough when things were just fine. And so what does that child non-verbally learn is that, that when you're having symptoms of some kind of illness or something, then that's going to feel good. And when you don't, then you're going to be feeling a shortfall of, of attentiveness and connection with others. And so it tends to lead to a pattern where, where physical symptoms might be emphasized and, and that can get to be really kind of a central theme in some people's lives. So that's an example, but another slightly earlier and very important set of examples are those attachment patterns that we talked about in the last podcast. And those are nonverbal schemas that are stored in procedural memory, and they tend to uh, last for a long time. One of the reasons they last so long is that these patterns are aimed at avoidance. And if you avoid something, then you avoid also doing the experiments that would allow you to learn something new. So let's say, for example, if we take a pattern of, of not trusting, if somebody learns not to trust, well, then they're going to avoid situations where they might have to trust somebody, so they're not going to learn to trust. A, a good example of, of one of these nonverbal schemas might be somebody who, in, a, in an intimate relationship, finds themselves without realizing why suddenly saying something inappropriate and insensitive that 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 blows up the the connection at that point that might be the kind of very very unconscious early reaction that that somewhere the non-conscious problem solver is seeing closeness as a dangerous thing and so without any awareness of where it's coming from a person might just do something to break the emotional connection that's just been established. And that can be very distressing and, and quite hard to, uh, to change because it happens so suddenly and without, without really any warning or any consciousness. 
So I'm thinking about how this kind of nonverbal schema comes up when you when you're talking about difficulties people have in relationships, like the uh, the man who can't make a commitment and has rationalizations for why, but the real reason for why he can't make a commitment is that there's some kind of terror involved with actually, you know, having a deep and ongoing relationship. Because the attachment is insecure. Yes, or there might be some more specific way that at some point it was scary and, and became something to be avoided. Right. So in, in describing these, the, the typical sensory motor schemas, you review them uh, chronologically through child development, beginning with pre-attachment. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So pre-attachment is a term that I'm, I made that up really, but what it's for is something that is often not talked about, but is really true that people with severe mental illness like schizophrenia have attachment patterns. They have, they have sensory motor schemas and those schemas uh, might have to do with very primitive early parts of development like developing the ability to tell the difference between yourself and the other person or being able to stand up for your own needs when there's a conflict with somebody else's needs. So sometimes people with, with really major mental illnesses will, in addition to whatever is biologically not going right, there are patterns that show troubles with development. And so like typically for people with, with schizophrenia, they typically have a lot of trouble claiming their own rights. And so even in a relationship with somebody who's just normally self-assertive, that may be more than a schizophrenic uh, person can handle. And so they'll feel like somebody else's uh, request is an obligation for them. And, and, and maybe they have to, if somebody else has a different attitude, maybe that means I'm gonna have to change my attitude about this and have a whole new value system. So it can be very distressing and I think it's just useful to be sensitive especially for those who work with the severely mentally ill, sensitive that there is a psychology there and there are sensory motor schemas and avoidance of painful emotions is, is part of that development too. Right. And so then that would point to further study of the double bind uh, mm -hmm. that Harold Searles often spoke of. Mm -hmm. um, with those things have, yeah, a lot of the modern research has kind of put those things aside, but on the other side of it, rehabilitation for those people or habilitation in the first place often does involve strengthening skills, like strengthening skills of, of assertiveness or of knowing where your boundaries are. People, even if they're severely ill, can make progress in those directions. So therapy can be relevant uh, for those people as well. So what about other nonverbal schemas, such as personality disorders? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Personality disorders are sensory motor schemas. That's what they're made up of. And they're well-entrenched patterns of responding to situations that don't work uh, very well at all, but they, all, they come from early development and they come from developmental challenges that haven't been resolved in a, in a satisfactory way. And so it leaves the, the person responding in patterned ways that get them in trouble over and over and over again. The two that come up the most, um, one would be narcissism, and a simple way of saying it is that the narcissistic person has not learned to lose battles gracefully. And I think of that starting with the temper tantrum, where 
where the person who ideally has a temper tantrum and learns through that, that even if you don't get your way, and even if you're very, very angry at your, your primary caregiver, the outcome is still okay, you're still lovable, your, your relationship is still intact, and your world is right side up and it's gonna be all right. That's, those are very, very important lessons that teach us that we don't have to be perfect. But imagine somebody who didn't learn that you can't be perfect and for whom being less than perfect feels like a, a like annihilation is, is near. Like if you're not perfect, it's the end of your world. And what's that person gonna do? Well, they're going to put all of their resources into denying that, that they did anything wrong or blaming somebody else for it. And then that's gonna have consequences. And so they'll be criticized for bad behavior. And what'll they do? They'll have to do the same pattern over again to, to deny that there's anything wrong, uh, proclaim that they're, that they're in fact they are perfect and, and blame other people for anything that went wrong. So there you have the, the kind of the typical pattern of, of a narcissistic person. And the reason it's so hard to treat is because in order to enter into treatment, you have to acknowledge that there's something wrong with you. And so if you can't do that because of your personality disorder, then entering treatment is, is unlikely to happen. It does occasionally, and sometimes there is such a thing as successful treatment. I've done it, it works, but it really requires an incredible amount of painful honesty. I would imagine a lot of patience from the therapist also. Yes, that's true. Uh, it's, it certainly is. Yes. And then there, are, then there are people with what's called borderline personality disorder. And I don't really like to use that diagnosis very much because by the time I'm ready to come to the diagnosis, I already know more about what's, why the person is having those responses and what's going on. And besides that, as Judith Herman pointed out so, so beautifully a few years ago, most of the people who are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder are actually people who've been traumatized. Right. Right. So the, the early theory of borderline personality disorder goes back to, again, early development, where at a certain stage in development, the good me, good mom relationship that feels great and and is works just fine is kept separate from the mom is mad at me and I'm a bad and I'm feeling bad that whole set of feelings are kept in kind of a, a separate compartment and again the resolution of those temper tantrums is one of the ways that those two get fused together where it turns out that it's okay you don't have to be perfect you're still lovable even if you did something wrong but once in a while, people keep those two separate and they'll maintain the separateness. And that maintenance of that separateness of the good me, good other versus the bad me, bad other gets prolonged. And so then if there's a new relationship built, maybe the relationship is going to start out with pure good me, good other. But then as soon as there's some conflict in that relationship, then it can switch, click, into bad me, bad other person, and there's a lot of anger and bad feeling, and a new relationship gets destroyed that way. And so that's kind of the core classical concept of what makes borderline personality development different. And sometimes trauma is the way that happens, 
Uh, it might be other kinds of, of problems early in life. And sometimes people act in erratic ways more because they've been traumatized uh, and, and not so much because they have those early, um, early developmental troubles. So it's a, it's a complicated diagnosis that I like to try to know more about what's going on underneath before I use that label. Right. Unfortunately, for those therapists who uh, work with, with insurance companies, we have to formulate a diagnosis within the first session. And uh, Yes. Well, I'll tell you a secret. Um, I, I tend to formulate the most benign diagnosis I can in the first. Adjustment disorder. That's the one <laughs> I use. Yeah. So um, what treatment resources would you go to for treating these uh, um, personality disorders? Well, there, there, there are lots of them. I, I mentioned in the, uh, in the book about uh, schema therapy, which is, is, I think, especially adapted for those situations where there was a shortfall in early life. Uh, like Jack would be an example of that, or many people who experience depression or eating disorders and different kinds of fairly serious pathology. And it, and it goes back very often to unfinished business from early life where there was a lack of attentiveness or, or a lack of, of connection. And what happens is nonverbal schemas get established that have to do with trying somehow to, to receive in adult life what was missed out on in early life. I call those early needs, I call it primal love. Uh, and if you think about it, primal love is a pretty fancy thing. It's 24-7, and it's one way you don't have to give anything back. You just It's just bestowed upon you if you're lucky. But what if you're not lucky and you didn't get as much of that as, as you needed? Then the process of making peace with what was missed out on and learning how to uh, get needs met in your, in your adult contemporary life where relationships are two-way and they're not 24-7, that's a more complicated treatment. So, so that's where schema therapy rests on a couple of principles. Uh, one is limited reparenting. And that's the idea that if you give some of what this person seems to be needing, then that at least keeps things going and, and it allows you to process the disappointment for all the, that you can't give at the same time as having a positive relationship because you were willing to do some. We talked about this in an earlier podcast about the inner child because the inner child is, is an especially good concept for working with people who've had a shortfall in their in fulfillment of early, early need. And the second principle of schema therapy is empathic confrontation. And what that really means is helping with, with compassion, helping the client make peace with the fact that that limited parenting really isn't what they were looking for because the client was really looking for full-blown 24-7, mom, give me what I didn't, didn't have. And mm -hmm. a therapist can't do that because we're just not there and, we're, and it's not the same. And so, so there's a disappointment and that's really what was missed out on. It wasn't that the absence of the parenting is what the client needs. What they need is to let it go. And to do that, you have to process the anger and disappointment and grief at not having all that you really deserve 
and should have had. And so then when, when we're working with a client who is younger, say 19 years old, and not so much looking at the past, say that this 19-year-old this was uh, well-parented, but is failing to launch and is terrified of not being on the same developmental track as, uh, as their peers. Um, or of being left out of life and doesn't know which choice to make, how, how would you apply limited reparenting and empathetic confrontation? Well, that's a really good question. So it, it happens very often with late teenagers and, and young adults that what's going on is, especially when the parenting wasn't so great, but nowadays life looks through the eyes of a young adult, it looks pretty daunting, it looks pretty hard. And so young people have a lot of trouble letting go of the luxury of being a kid. And when you're a kid, if something goes wrong, who do you blame? You don't blame yourself, you blame the parents. You know, when your teenagers do that all the time. And growing into adulthood means letting go of that. Uh, I've probably said it before, but my, my definition of adulthood is having the feeling of full ownership of your own life. But when you're a teenager, you don't feel like you're the full owner. You're not fully responsible for your life. And that takes a load off your shoulders. So we're helping when we're working with a 19-year-old, we're helping that person let go of the wish to have somebody hold their hand into adulthood or at least somebody be responsible. Yes, hold their hand is okay, but be responsible, no. And, and we're helping them to face the scariness of the life that's, that's ahead of them. And I, I do think in this, for the current generation, it, it's a lot more scary than it was for, for some of the older generations like mine. So some considerations to generally keep in mind, you say, is that therapy for milder dysfunctional nonverbal schemas is similar to what athletes may do to break a bad habit in their game. It's a very interesting metaphor, similarly. What, could, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. Well, the, the, the main key to that is that we're talking about patterns that are nonverbal things that that people just do automatically and they don't even realize that that they're following that pattern and it might be a way to try to substitute for what was missed out on or to find the fulfillment in in some other way so we're asking people to make a change that until it really gets into your behavior it isn't really acquired let's put it that way and so how do athletes and uniformed officers, police and firemen and things, how do they learn how to do the right thing when their brain is under stress? Well, it's by practice. And, but sometimes the practice is in the imagination. Like skiers will imagine the, the course that they're going to ski down before they actually get on it. So it is a lot like sports in that we're, we're helping people to acquire something that's a more of an experiential nonverbal pattern. On the other hand, it's different from sports too, because in sports you don't have the pain of letting go of something that you really, really wanted and facing something that's really scary. Well, maybe the facing something is similar, 
but the letting go part of it is is not part of sports training. Right. The disappointment can be really difficult to manage. Also, in this chapter, you also mention reenactment as an avoidance pattern. Yes, that's one of the very important uh, sorts of patterns that we run into. And it's where people have had some really unsatisfactory experience. It didn't go right. And yet they still want to have that experience and, and feel like, like it needs to be repeated until they get it right. And of course, that's not conscious. Uh, for example, I, I remember a, a young woman who'd lost her father when she was, I believe, nine. And that was a very, very traumatic loss at a kind of critical moment in her development. And she would take trips here and there. She'd go out to California and, to, and somehow then she'd find somebody who was just an amazing person and then things wouldn't work out because it really wasn't realistic to begin with. And then her parents would go and kind of rescue her as, as a young adult and bring her back. But she did this repeatedly and it was very clear that it was a reenactment of something that was unsatisfactory. This is what Freud would call the repetition compulsion. That's right. And people have wondered ever since exactly why, why do human beings do that? Because it obviously doesn't work. It doesn't get us what we're looking for. And yet people do it over and over again. The most common one is marrying somebody who's very similar to the person that you had an unsatisfactory relationship with in the first place. You know, there are various ways to explain it. One of the better ones, I suppose, is doing a story over again in the hopes of having a different outcome. And what happens is it's sort of like in, in, the, in the movies when, when they have a serial and you end, end one episode with a cliffhanger before the next one. And, and you know, the, the person is lying on the railroad tracks and the train is coming and, and a disaster is about to happen. Well, in order to really feel like this is a redo of the thing that didn't go right in the first place, you have to set it up so that it's as close to the original as possible. And what happens is people really do find others in their, in their relationships who are just like in the critical areas, who are just like the one who didn't do the right thing way back when. And so naturally enough, the outcome is just the same. And it doesn't work out. So I have um, a number of patients who are very aware of their repetition compulsion, who have a history of failed relationships. Um, they've traced the dysfunctional primary relationship to its root, and, and they're very cognizant of it and are careful to make different choices, to choose different types of people who in their appearance and presentation really do seem to be markedly different from mm. the primary person and yet who somehow still manage to be exactly like that primary person, at least in the dynamic of the relationship. And they're stymied. And they say, I know what it's all about, but how do I get out of it? Do you have an answer? <laughs> and, well, so first of all, I think that it's not just the choice of the person. That's one element. And sometimes the person really is different. But then there's the element of 
how one interacts with that person that brings out the same kind of reaction that didn't work out in the past. And that there's a third element, which is how you interpret the reaction of the other person. And so unconsciously, we tend to do all three, choose the wrong person by some kind of radar that's just amazingly accurate, interact with the person in a way that gets them to do the thing we don't want them to do, and finally interpret what they do as meaning exactly what it is that we were kind of expecting and not wanting. And so it's a very, very powerful tendency for, for these things to happen. How do you get over it? You know, I really think it's, it's kind of similar to when something was missed out on, to the, the, the last kind of nonverbal schema we were talking about, where it's the emotional work that counts. It's the emotional coming to closure, coming to peace, coming to acceptance with what didn't work out in the first place. And, and boy, that is hard. I'll tell you one reason why it's hard is because one thing you can never get children to do is to give up hope. Right. Uh, you know, you can, you can tell them, but they, it just doesn't compute. They just won't, won't accept that. If you tell them that, no, there's nothing we can do about it. That's the end. It's just too bad. Got to let it go. Children will say, yeah, but, and, and they'll come up with a, with a way to rekindle hope. And so in the same way, we're dealing with a childlike mind here because we all have that inner child. And in a way, another way to describe the inner child is to say that we can switch into a childlike mindset. And that childlike mind just knows that this time it's got to work. And so I think it's, it's really challenging. I don't have a, a quick easy answer for you about how to make that case go right. I have one, one I'm thinking about right now that it's the same kind of thing. It's really, really hard to make peace with a failure, especially when it's around something that feels like an emotional necessity, an emotional life and death issue. Then it's very hard to let go of hopes, even if they're unrealistic and in fantasy and at odds with the reality in front of you. So then, you know, for instance, I, I have uh, one patient whose uh, mother committed suicide when the patient was seven years old, and then who uh, was raised by a rageaholic and an alcoholic, and there was a lot of drug addiction in her environment, and she tried to steer as straight of a course in her own behavior and integrity as she possibly could has naturally huge abandonment issues, is clear and present to the relationships of her life, and yet who manages to be systematically abandoned for one reason or another, and is struggling with isolation. Yes, so you're going to need to, to get to the very core feelings of abandonment, of loss. And I think what I would guess about that case is that the terrible experience of the loss of her mother is something that is locked away somewhere and, uh, and she hasn't had access to that all the way. I'm, I'm sure you've worked on it, but I'll bet you that there's a, there's a chunk of it um, that is still there. Another thing I would add that's sort of more on the behavioral side, is that, that learning to love yourself, learning to 
take care of yourself when you haven't had adequate parenting is not only hard to accept, but it also has a learning curve because people don't just come ready-made knowing how to be kind to themselves, knowing that one of the ways to be kind to yourself is to be good to other people in such a way that they want to give back. And that way you get support and you get the things that you need from people. So it may be that, that your client has some learning to do about how to interact, how to choose the right kind of people and how to interact with them in, in a way that, that works out. One thing I would say is that this is, this is going far astray, but in new relationships, what I see over and over again is the number one thing to be watching for is what I call equal risk that if you're starting a relationship with somebody and you tell them things, let's say personal things about yourself, you need to observe whether the other person feels a need to reciprocate or to take an equal risk in, in some other way. And what happens so often with relationships is people will start a relationship and overlook the fact that the other person is really not risking as much emotionally or investing in, in other ways, investing in the relationship. And that's the earliest sign of a relationship that's not going to work out. So I tell people, you know, spot that right at the beginning. And if the person isn't just naturally inclined to give as much as they receive, then let them go. Uh-huh. That's, that's a very, very interesting one. It's great shorthand, too. Right. And personally, in my practice, I, I look for these kinds of things, shorthand for very complex issues. Yeah. Thank you. So. Moving on then. Okay, uh, acting out is the first thing that Freud noticed about behavior. And you know, unfortunately, I think psychodynamic therapy, the kind that, that was the, the descendants of, of Freud kind of lost track of behavior. But he understood right from the beginning that people do things sometimes that just takes the energy out of the therapy or that redirects the energy of their emotions into some kind of action uh, takes the steam out of the emotion and that robs you of the opportunity to process the emotion the way it needs to be done. I'm thinking about an example of this and, and I, I'm sorry, I apologize for the fact that I've used this example before, but it's such a good one. Okay. And this was a case that I knew about. A woman was in intensive psychotherapy and began to develop really strong feelings towards her therapist. And the feelings were that she wanted to get some kind of nurturing and support from the therapist. And that was something that she felt ashamed of and guilty about. And so she couldn't say it out loud, but there were just, there were a lot of hints in the, in the therapy that there were strong feelings starting to bubble up. And for example, the patient was, uh, was late to one session or she'd come early or forget a session because she had really strong feelings about those sessions. Well, as this neediness was coming to flower, was, was becoming more and more obvious, and it was getting harder for the client to suppress that and, and keep the lid on it. So what happened, that's the one who had some anxious feelings and she went to the emergency room in between sessions and told the doctor there that, that about her symptoms. And the doctor said, oh, you're depressed, and gave her an antidepressant. And then to add to the acting out, then she went and she told all of her friends and, and acquaintances that she had depression. 
and that she was, was mentally ill. And that way people said, oh, poor thing. And they gave her a lot of the kind of support that she wanted. But what she really needed was the understanding and support of her therapist and to be able to identify within the therapy what those feelings were and where they were coming from. But, but by taking the need outside and getting some kind of substitute for it, it was enough of a Band-Aid so that it cooled down the neediness a little bit, uh, but it didn't really satisfy. And so what happens with something like that is, is it means it's going to come back into the therapy later on because those needs, when they're not satisfied, just come back. But some time was lost in the process. So that was a, a beautiful, classic example of acting out in the context of a therapy. In other ways, acting out really can be, let's say, be doing something hurtful when you're angry, then you don't feel the anger anymore. You just do the hurtful thing and then that has consequences. And so there are many other ways that people put emotions into action. A lot of marital discord, a lot of marital arguments start out with real genuine feelings, but instead of the feelings getting shared and a mutual understanding coming out of it, it turns into taking jabs at the other person, for example, or, or manipulating or different unhealthy patterns like that, that lead the couple further and further away from what the real issue is. You, you say something very interesting about acting out, which is that the hallmark of acting out is moving so quickly from impulse to action that there is no time or opportunity to notice the triggering circumstance or associated feeling. This notion of, of speed is interesting. Yeah, we operate, you know, we think we're rational, but boy, what a large part of our behavior really comes from the non-conscious problem solver, as I like to call it in the, in the book, from that part of our mind that's trying to watch out for us, but using much more primitive, basic methods to do that, and things like acting out that's that's totally uh, out, of, out of our control. And what we hope in therapy is to bring awareness, and along with awareness, maybe the person begins to, to notice that fork in the road where they could go right or left, and then they can make a choice. But until they're aware of the fork in the road, then it really is so automatic that you don't have much of a, much of a chance. You're just going to follow down that path. So I think we start with trying to bring awareness after it's too late, and then eventually, hopefully, awareness before the action takes place. Right, because without awareness, healing is prevented. Right, that's right, yep. So you refer to treatment resources here for acting out, mm -hmm. motivational interviewing, and DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy. Could you tell us a little bit about how those are best suited for working on acting out? Yes. So especially with the externalizing sort of person, a motivational therapy is really, really good because it's about helping somebody who's habitually doing actions that are self-harming to, to help them make their own decision and overcome their resistance to being told what to do. You know, this was originally invented for people with addictions who are very much want to be in control of their lives and really, really 
react negatively to somebody else telling them what to do. You know, and they're often mandated into therapy also. And, and Right, and that complicates it too. So motivational interviewing is where you, you sort of lead the person gently to come to their own realization that, you know, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe it really isn't helpful and maybe it really would be a good idea to, to make changes. And, and then the, the other one is dialectical behavior therapy because that's a, a therapy that's really focused on people whose level of arousal gets out of control, who, who get so aroused by intense feelings that their thinking brain shuts down and they, and they can't really uh, manage very much of anything at those times. And so there are a lot of techniques included in dialectical behavior therapy that have to do with how to manage the level of arousal, how to, how to calm things down, how to put some oil on the water. And for anybody who's had a little bit of a philosophy background, you know, dialectical means going back and forth from, from one thing to another and then finding something in the middle. The dialectical part of that is going from an empathic tuning into the feelings, which then tends to get the feelings riled up, and then going to something that's more techniques and more structured to calm the feelings down. And you go back and forth between those two. Right. And that really slows things down, doesn't it? It does. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, there are other ways to do that. There are many other ways to, to manage strong feelings. But those are two in particular when we're dealing with nonverbal action-oriented problems then, then those two are, are things that one might want to know something about. So this concludes part one of chapter 14. Thank you for listening to the end today. Uh, we hope it's been helpful to you and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? I, I don't think there's anything much. This, this next half of the chapter is chock full of interesting stuff as well. So I'm looking forward to it and we'll see you next time. Very good. Goodbye. Bye-bye.